Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. Um, we got just a little bit of catching up to do, and well, don't worry, we'll get there. As long as uh, Don doesn't send us off on any rabbit trails here tonight. Well, we took a vote last week, and you're only allowed to give a five-minute answer. Five-minute answer to any question. Okay. Hey, we need a we need a, a pizza night next week or something like that. Is that all right? That'd be all right. Pizza night next week. Come hungry. All right. Father, thanks for this night, and thanks for bringing us together and keeping us safe. I pray that um, as we examine your word, that you would teach us. Thank you for this opportunity, and thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth, that we can understand it. And thank you for this day, in Christ's name, amen. amen. All right, let's uh, pick up with Acts 11. Um, I think we got partway through the chapter there last time. Um, verse 19 yeah, chapter 11, verse 19. Of course, the first part here is Peter explaining to the Jerusalem church what happened up here with Cornelius. And their big concern was that, um, you know, how are the Gentiles coming in on this thing? And again, um, going back to that culture of that day, um, it was unheard of for Gentiles to be part of God's people. I mean, the Israelites were very much... Um, uh, national bigots. Um, the idea of a Gentile being blessed was beyond them. Um, it's interesting. Uh, remember when Christ, I think, was at Nazareth and he was preaching at Nazareth, and he said that you know there was a lot of widows in the time when Elijah was around, and the only one that got taken care of was a Gentile, and they got all mad. The Israelites got all mad and angry about that a woman of Zarephath, which was outside of Israel. Zarephath, outside of Israel. They were very much, you know, cultural bigots. They they did not want the Gentiles in on this. And what you fascinatingly see is how, at least in the early church, um, the, the very fact that they would they would even consider the Gentiles as part of the the church was a was a really a a, a, a real turning point. And many of their th- many of um, many of the thinking of the people there, but but they still had a hard time breaking out of that. Of course, uh, who had a hard time still breaking out of that? Peter did, right? He got chewed out by Paul in Galatians. Um, you know, when he was with the Gentiles, he was having a ham sandwich and everything else. And as soon as the G- Jews showed up, he withdrew from the Gentiles and you know didn't want to offend the Jews. And Paul says, you know, you're being hypocritical on that. You know, if, as long as the Jews aren't here, you're with the Gentiles. As soon as they show up, you want to hang around with the Jews. You know, it's one or the other. It's not both. But what you see now is is what you're going to start seeing now in Acts 11 and 12, 13 and 14, is you're going to start seeing this massive ship, if you want to think of it, turn and go towards the Gentiles. All right. It's going to start turning towards the Gentiles. And why is that? I mean, again, go, remember our first lesson. What what kind of period is this? 
in Acts. It's transition. And in the old covenant, who was God's chosen people? What people did God work through? Israel. And in the new covenant or in the New Testament time, who does God work through? The church, which is made up of Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2. There's no difference. It's Jew or Gentile. But by and large, <laughs> who makes up the church proportionally? Gentiles. Uh, you got a few Jews here and there that are in there. But for the most part, it's Gentile. And what you start seeing is this massive transition almost between, you know, the people here that that is that is going. And, and you see, especially because in Acts 1 through 12, Peter is the main you know, personality and Acts 13 through 28. You've got Paul, who is the, the apostle to the Gentiles. All right. So you're going to start seeing the shift. And it starts here with Cornelius in Acts 10. You have the council in Acts 11. And in verse 19, now these those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but who? To Jews only. They're only preaching to the Jews. Now, what are these um, these places here? They're beyond. They're, they're, they're beyond. You're outer, starting to... Outermost edge of the earth. Well, not the outermost edge, well, I mean, quite, but I mean, they're, 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 they're making their way outward from it. I'm a horrible artist here. This is sort of like Mediterranean Sea, something like that. I don't know. Use your projector, your map projector. I should. I should project a map up here, all right? Jerusalem is sort of over here, right? This is Jerusalem. And where's Antioch at? About where it starts to go. Yes, Antioch is up here. And that is... Quite a way. Where's Phoenicia? Phoenicia, there's a, there's the little there's a little thing of tire tire right there. This is Phoenicia. And where is Phoenicia? And where is um Cyprus? Cyprus is right there, right? That's Cyprus. So what what do you have happening is the church, because of the persecution that was going on, people start leaving Jerusalem and going out into the other areas of the Roman Empire. And what was true about all of these areas, for the most part? There's a large number of Jews, right? The closer you are to Israel, the more proportionally Jews you have. So the disciples who were scattered abroad, took the message of the gospel, and they went to the Jews in all of these places. They had synagogues. All right, that's usually where they went. Um, the synagogue was an interesting concept. When did anybody know when it started? The synagogue started? Yeah, right, right after that. After the Babylonian captivity, when Israel had been scattered throughout the world, instead of many of them going back to their land, they would have little communities wherever they were. And if you had, I think it was 10 men, you could have a synagogue. Um, and that was a place where on Saturdays they would read the law and teach the law. And it was sort of like the, the social, it's, it's, it's really the precursor to the church almost. And you see this in the book of James where it talks about um, you see a man come into your synagogue. You know, because back then, and J James was probably one of the first books written 
um, first New Testament books, you were still very much Jewish-oriented, Jewish-bound. If you remember New Testament survey, you could take the book of James, take out a couple of references there, and put it in the Old Testament. It'd fit in fine. It's that Jewish of a book. But you see the synagogues, and where did these Christians go? They went to the synagogues to preach the gospel, and, and that was the, probably the most logical place to go, right? Because the Jews already had a knowledge of God. They're already looking for their Messiah. All you need to do is show up and tell them he's here, or he arrived. Well, actually, the first Christians were Jews. Yes. For the most part. Yes. And the only difference between the two of them is there's a handful of Jews that believe the Savior or Messiah had already arrived. Yeah. That's the only difference. There's, 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 the early church was very much Jewish. Mm -hmm. And what you see proportionally is that it, during this transition period, it really begins to drop off to where towards, you know, about 100 A.D., the bulk of the church now is starting to become, you know, Gentile. That's really where the growth is occurring. But some of them who, who were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Who's the Hellenists? The Greeks. Helene is from, that's the Greek word for Greece, Helene. But weren't they, weren't they Jews that accepted the yeah. Gentile, the way of the they, Greeks? They had, they had, they had merged. Yeah. Um, you can, it, um, trying to think here if it was all, if the Hellenists were all Jews. I think they were. They might have been all Jews. Um, the Hellenists... One of the problems with, with, with uh, the Hellenists, at least from the Jewish mindset, is that they were, um, what do you want to call it, uh, traitors to the Jewish cause. They had bought into the Greek lifestyle. They were Jews that had bought into the Greek lifestyle and uh, were more interested in being Greek than Jewish. So they started All right. Jews, not Greek. They were Jews. Yeah, I'm, I, I was wrong on that. They were Jews. They were Jews that, were, were that had Greek adopted the Greek the Greek lifestyle and the Greek Language. languages and everything else. Um, so they were seen as traitors That's to the... called uh, the Hellenists or something, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they, the Greeks came in and started uh, scattering all these different... Hellenizing the Jews. Things that they've learned from yeah. all throughout the empire, not mm -hmm. just Greece. Yeah, and um, this, was, this was really what sparked the uh, Maccabean War. If you go back and look at the intertestamental period, what sparked that is the attempt by Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek ruler, to try and uh, eradicate the Jewish culture and, and really have it absorb Greek ideas, Greek customs, Greek ideas, the Greek language. Um, and they fought against that, and that's what caused the Maccabean Revolt um, in about 150 AD and, and 150 BC. 200 to 150 BC. That's what sparked that whole mess. Um, but they preached to the Hellenists of all people. Um, no, Greek, the, the true-blooded Jews thought every Gentile was fodder for hell. So the idea that, that a Jew would stoop to take on Greek ideas 
was reprehensible to the Jew, to the, to the Pharisaical Jew. I mean, it is reprehensible that they would do something like that. It's almost like uh, if you're if you're an Orthodox Jewish family and your son marries, you know, somebody else and eats ham for breakfast. I mean, you just like freak, you know, how could he do something like that? You know, that's just unheard of. Um, they they you got to understand the, the the racial bigotry at that time. I mean, it was even worse than what you see in the old south with between the whites and the blacks. It was even worse than that. I mean, it was it was bad. Um, we don't we don't we don't comprehend that. Yeah, here it was it was just color, whereas over there it was color and religion. It was color, religion, and culture and language. Yeah. I mean, it was everything. You know, um, it was it was everything. I mean, Jews would not even go into a Gentile house or they'd be unclean. Right. You know, I mean, you talk about really a, a divide there. And anybody that any Jew that would buy into any kind of of Gentile customer or intermarry with Gentiles was just, you know, they were just dirt. I mean, that's what that's the shocking thing about the Samaritans. They were the, you know, the the half Jew, half Gentile. And, and here are Jews that have bought the bought into the, at least the Greek culture to a large extent. But yet, when the Gospels preach, they believe and they're made part of the church. So the great number believed in turn of the Lord. And then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, what did they send Barnabas to do? What's going on? Now, again, you got to understand the average, you know, Jewish Christian sitting in Jerusalem is like, wait a minute. <laughs> What's going on here? We got the Samaritans in on this deal. Cornelius, of all things, Gentiles are in on this deal. And now even the Hellenists are in on this deal. All right. And what you see is God really doing a work to merge all the different groups together and try to get across the idea that, look, within the church, within the body of Christ, there are no racial barriers. Okay. And I'll, I'll, just as an aside, I've tossed this in for free. That's what Galatians 3, I think it's 28, is saying. Go to Galatians 3.20. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. Now, the, the feminazis of the Christian church like to use that verse to eradicate all role distinctions within the church and say you can have women pastors and women preachers and women everything. What's that verse saying in context? In the church, spiritually standing, your spiritual standing in the church is not racially or or um, economically or gender based. Everybody's the same. And in fact, the word there for male and female is is only used there in the, all the New Testament. And refers to the maleness and the femaleness. It's almost like it, it's the gender. It's, it's pointing to gender. It's not saying there's neither man nor woman. It's there is neither male nor female. Gender. Just like there's, it is, you know, if you want to go to that route and say, well, that verse is teaching that there's no um, role distinctions now between men and women in the church. Well, then neither is there any role distinction between a slave and a master. Right? Now, would you say that there's no that that if I work for a Christian employer, I don't have to obey him? 
we're equal? There's no distinction? No, that's not what it's saying. That flies in the face of Philemon, right? Who was told to take Onesimus back, and Onesimus was told, you go and serve your master. I mean, he's your master. You're to go serve him. So that's not what it's saying at all, all right? That's taking it out of context. And what God is doing is he's trying to bring together in the church all racial, national, gender, economic groups as one. And that's what he's working on. They were really they were really the foundation of the church. It really consisted of like, you know, the, the, the really the 12 apostles were part of that. Um, James, the brother of the Lord, was part of that. Um, possibly Jude, the brother of the Lord, was part of that. Um, these were the leaders of the Jerusalem church. So why did they just call them apostles? Were there people beyond the Yes, the yes. The James was. Um, James, the, the half-brother of the Lord, was uh, really the head of the Jerusalem um, council. And in fact, um, historically, I think Eusebius says that uh, Peter and, I think it was Peter and John not wanting to cause division, um, had James elected as the head of the Jerusalem council. You know, there was no reference uh, as to who constituted the Jerusalem council. No, we know there. You know, Peter was in there. We know John was in there. We know James was in there. I mean, we know about those. We're not sure about others. You know, tradition says that there were seventy of them. To they were similar to what the Sanhedrin was. Yeah. So these would be the elder. And remember, there were 70 disciples, and possibly that's where a lot of it came from. Remember back in the Gospels, there were 70 that Christ sent out two by two. And of those 70, he chose 12 to be the disciples. Um, so it's possible that that is really the core of what the Jerusalem Council was. All right. Um, so they, they sent Barnabas out. And when he came and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with the purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas is a good old boy, I tell you, he's one of the guys you want to look up in heaven, right? I mean, he was just an encouragement. You ever, you're, you know, you ever around people that are just encouraging to be around? And you ever be around people that are just like, oh, no, not him, or her, you know? Yeah, they got this cloud going, you know, like little, what is it, Linus or whatever on on Charlie Brown that has a little cloud pig pen or, well, who's the one with the little black, maybe I'm thinking, okay, that's the other one, that's a different one. But, uh, you know, Barnabas was a encouraging guy. And I think we could take a little bit of lesson from that, you know, to ask ourselves, you know, we're done talking to somebody, do they feel better or worse? You know, um, are they encouraged or discouraged? And, you know, there are some people who just have this negative spin on everything. Hey, it's a great day. Yeah, it's a great day, but, you know, well, this is not Barnabas. He he saw the good in things. He saw the what God was doing and he encouraged people. And he was he was one of those guys that just motivated others to do their best. And you know, that's the kind of person I'd like to be. I'd like to be one who's known as a motivator, as a positive person, um, that, that when people are done talking to me, they feel good. They feel better. Um, they don't feel like they want to go and shoot themselves, you know, or, 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 or need to take, uh, 
medication after they're done talking to me. Son of Consolation. Yeah, and he was the one really that, that brought Paul into the church. I mean, he he vouched for Paul and he discipled Paul. How would you like to be the discipler of Paul, of all people? You know, that'd be... He was tamed a little bit at that time. I mean, that's what Barnabas was. And then it says, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Why did he do that? Don't know about the mission yet. They don't know about the missionary journey yet. He probably wondered how Paul was doing. And he's up close to, you know, Tarsus is not too far from Antioch up there. So probably what was happening is he said, you know, hey, while I'm in the area, I might as well go look up and see how Saul's doing down there. Because remember, he, is, he had with, been with Saul. And by the way, there's a few years that have elapsed here, okay? There's a few years. Um, there's maybe a, maybe at least a decade that we have here, you know, anywhere from 9 to 11 years between the account of Paul's conversion and this account here, all right? Um, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch so, so that it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So Paul was brought back to Antioch. He ministered with Barnabas. They taught the people there and ministered for over a year together in Antioch. That talks about in verses 27 through 30, one of the famines. You know, in those days, um, you know, because of just the way things were, if you had a, missed a couple of crops in a particular area, you had a famine. And, uh, you know, they didn't ship their food in from across the country or anything. They didn't have, you know, what we have today. You know, one of the things that mitigates, you know, starvation, at least in the developed countries, is our transportation system, Right. I mean, you know, it's amazing in the middle of winter, you can go buy strawberries. Where do they come from? Well, California, you know, or someplace like that. Well, back then they didn't have that. Um, and so Agabus, and he's going to pop up later on, predicted this famine. So what did the Christians in Antioch do? Took up a collection and sent it down to the Christians in Jerusalem. All right. And what you start seeing here is how the Christians helped one another. And who did they send it with? Barnabas. Barnabas and Saul. Now, what does that tell you about Saul? He was not your average TBN preacher type, was he? You could trust him. And in fact, it's interesting when we study Corinthians next semester, hopefully you can come back for that. Um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the collection and, and the thing. And he, he spends a whole chapter talking about all of the, the safeguards he's put in to make sure that the money that the people gave actually got to the people that it was going to. And he talked about, you know, that he had two or three people with him that they, you know, he, he, he wanted everything to be totally above board and open. And by the way, you know, that's, that's the way it should be um, in a ministry. I mean, there are some things, of course, you you, you know, like an open door. You, every penny we spend is public knowledge except salaries. We don't publicly, you know, say what each person makes. That's just something we, you know, we do here at, at, at Open Door. In a smaller church, you may know what the pastor makes. 
Um, but your money should be above board. You know, people should be able to say, hey, you know, what did we do with our money last year? And you should have an audited financial statement that shows where it went and who got it and where, you know, when the pastor's driving around on a Rolls Royce and the, you know, the church can't pay its bills, there's, there's a problem here. All right. So you need to make sure that, that you're a person of integrity. And Paul, of all things, stressed again and again and again, integrity, integrity, integrity in everything you do. No, no, no gimmicks. He says, I'm not one of those that is a huckster of the gospel. I'm not out selling this stuff. I'm not in it for the favors. I'm not in it for the money. In spite of what John Avanzini says, Paul was not a wealthy man. John Avanzini is one of the TBN guys that says Paul was extremely wealthy. Um, he had money. And by the way, Christ was extremely wealthy because he wore designer clothes that... I mean, I heard the guy preach, so I know what he's saying. Um, total nut job. Um, Paul says, I want, I want it to be above board. And, and the church selected, you know, if they're going to select some guys to take the money down, they're going to select the best. And that's what they had here. So evidently, what do you know about Saul and Barnabas, at least at this stage? They were trustworthy and they had been working together for a long time such that the church saw them as sort of partners in ministry, if you want to think about it in those terms. Yeah. Reign of Claudius dated before or after that prediction was made? Um, it was during the reign of Claudius and the reign of Claudius in my MacArthur Study Bible, which you also have a copy of. Um, says he was emperor from 41 to 54 AD. So that gives you an idea of the time frame of this. All right. So whatever. So when was the prediction made then in comparison to when it actually happened? Then? The prediction was it was going to happen in the days of Claudius Caesar. So it was a prediction about a future event. Right. And Claudius Caesar reigned from 41 to 54. So probably this is sometime around A.D. 40, 40-ish, give a... Yeah. About 11 years, about a decade or so. And, and of course, the crucifixion is debated, like whether it's A.D. 30 or 33 or 32. Um, we don't have exact dates on that. But it's, it's we know Claudius Caesar was 41 to 54. What so. prediction? Prediction of the famine. Famine. Okay. Because all of a sudden it goes from the prediction to taking up the offering already, but then you have to remember that it, it jumps ahead to like during the time of Claudius. Well, I think I think what's happened is they're taking a collection. I think what happened is the, the famine happened during the reign of Claudius. Mm -hmm. And again, the, the dates, this is fuzzy date. I mean, you don't know, it doesn't give you a date and a time and a place. Probably this prediction was made somewhere around 8040, 8041, you know, probably, you know, maybe a year before the famine or something like that. Because um, it gave them time to prepare and to save some money, you know, to collect the money to take it down um, to the Christians that would help them, you know, in this time of famine. What would you say, Josephus said, what about 44, 45? All right, well, that's. That's about the time. 
And again, Acts is generally chronological, but it, right. you know, it skips ahead and back a little bit because Luke is writing from AD 60 looking backwards. All right. And then in chapter 12, we have the account of Herod. And we know this date pretty well. This is about AD 44. Um, how do we know that? He died in 44. <laughs> so we know when he died. Um, he was the emperor from AD, or the, the tetrarch there from AD 37 to 44. Um, the Herods were an interesting family. Um, Herod the Great, who was his grandfather, um, was proclaimed king of Judah by Caesar. I think it was Julius Caesar, if I'm not mistaken, in AD 70, or BC 70, 70 BC, and reigned for many, many years. In fact, Herod died eight, um, about four, let's see, when did he die? He died 6 BC, I think it was, somewhere around. No, excuse me, it was 4 B.C. And we know he died in 4 B.C. because there was a eclipse of the moon that was the spring in which he died. And the only eclipse of the moon in that area for those years was B.C. 4, which meant Jesus was born when? B.C. 4. No. If Herod killed all the children two years and under A.D. or B.C. 6, so probably B.C. 6, mm -hmm. B.C. 5 or something like that is about when Christ was born. It was not zero. <laughs> there was no year zero. It went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. All right. Um, but that's that's the best we can do with the date. But we know cert there are certain dates you can peg pretty close. And Herod died in the spring of the year where there was a lunar um, eclipse, the only spring where that occurred. And that time was um, BC four, so that's we know that. When did they start counting from that? When did they start establishing the cal calendar from the approximate date of Christ? Uh, uh, it's in the 1500s is when it really started. Archbishop Usher is the one who started working on doing some dating and things like that. And I, I'm fuzzy on that, so you might have to go out and do a little bit of research. Um, well, he actually miscalculating. He, he, he when he first started out, he wanted to calculate. Um, he said the Earth was created in 4000 BC, doing his little math. Then he found out he made a four-year mistake, and it was really 4004 BC when it was created. Um, you know, there there are some things you just don't have good dates on. Um, and you'd have to read about that whole, you know, how he came up with that calendar and all of that. Um, but they wanted to try and date it from Christ's birth. And he made a four-year mistake. So you got to shove Christ back at least four years. And, um, you know, the, the, the Bible didn't give us his exact birthday. When was Christ probably born? December 25th? No. He was born in the spring. Late spring, probably. I mean, the shepherds were in their fields by night, you know. Um, so it's probably he was born in the spring of BC six, some probably sometime around in there. Sounds like a good paper topic. It is. It's a real good paper topic. Um, probably around six BC. And the difficulty then is, well, when was Christ crucified? That's the toughie. 
Um, there's some that say AD 32, AD 33. Um, when you get to dating, um, the, the best date, Luke, who's the historian, says Christ's ministry began in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. And when did Tiberius begin reigning? Well, began reigning, I think, about 14 AD. So the 15th year would be what? 29. John says Christ was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. So if Christ is about 30 years old and he was born in 6 BC, what year is that? AD 26, maybe sometime around in there. But note what John said. He was about 30. Probably the best date, if you want to date things, Luke's probably the one you want to deal with. Because he talks about in the 15th year of the reign. We're, we're, we're um, trying to think of where that is in Luke. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Um, somebody can look that up while I'm, while I'm yabbering here. But I think it... Um, trying to remember where it said that. Three one. Three one. All right, let's look at three one in my in your authorized MacArthur Study Bible. Yeah, fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch. Now that's not Herod the Great. That's his son Herod. There's Herod. There's Herod, and Herod Agrippa, and Herod. You know, there's all kinds of Herods here. All right. So I don't think there's only one of these guys. Um, there's still a little bit of fuzziness on this, like when did Tiberius actually be named um, named to be emperor? Fifteenth um, year is somewhere around eighty twenty-five or twenty-six. Um, if he was, and again, the question is, this this is what makes it so tough here. If it's if it's from when Tiberius was named emperor, it'd be 25-26. If it was when Augustus died, because their reigns overlapped a little bit, it would be it would be a later date, AD 28 or 29. So again, even though you have a date there, it's kind of hard. Like, okay, which date did Luke mean? And back in those days, you know, you know, people reckoned their years by you know the the, the reign of the king. You know, 13th year, the reign of King so-and-so. And then the whole question is, well, when did he begin to reign? Yeah. Then you got to nail that down. Um, there's, a, there's, for example, one of the things that confuses many in the Old Testament is there's three Jewish kings that were reigning at the same time. Grandfather, father, and son. And their reigns overlap by a period of a few years. So if you go back to back, you're going to get your chronology off. You got to sort through that, so... That's one of the things that Archbishop Usher had to sort through and where he made his little miscalculation here. But we know about A.D. 44 is when this, uh, this deal with Herod occurred. And uh, this is Herod Agrippa I. There's two Agrippas. This is Herod Agrippa I. Then there's Herod Agrippa II, who shows up later on in Acts. All right. 
Yes. Yes. That was Herod Agrippa the second. This is Herod Agrippa the first. All right. And then there's other Herods. There's Philip. There's Herod. Her, um, there was Philip. There was I can't remember the other two. Um, and Antipas. And um, I can't remember the other one. All right. There are three of them. That was Herod, I think, Antipas, if I'm not mistaken. All right. Um, somebody's probably got these written down somewhere. 1395. See these people with these with these really cool MacArthur Study Bibles. See, turn to page 1395 in your MacArthur Study Bible. Yeah, you got Herod the Great. And then you've got um, you got Philip, Archelaus, Anipus. Archelaus, Archelaus was a really a I think he was the really a bad guy. And he was so bad that he's the one when Joseph heard that his son reigned instead, he instead of going back to Judea, he went up to Nazareth to get away. One of them was so bad that Rome, he was too bad for Rome to deal with. Um, Herod Anipus died around AD 39. Um, and then Herod Agrippa I was the son of Aristobulus. Um, uh, Herod Agrippa I and Herodias were brother and sister. And Herodias was the wife of Herod Antipas. Talk about incest. I mean, you talk about, you know, soap opera. Yeah, I mean, this was this these this was a, one of the grossest immoral families in the whole. I mean, they were so gross, even Rome had trouble with them, which is sort of bad. Well, they were Idumean. Um, and that's what the Jews hated him so much because he was an outsider and he was the king over Judea. And, and I understand what you mean by that. Uh, Rome ran things. All right. After you answer this question, I have a question. Okay. Rome ran things. Okay. And so how did Herod get to be named the king? Well, he cited, remember, remember, um, was it Julius Caesar? And the old battle between Julius and Mark Antony and uh, Augustus. Guess who? Uh, what happened is Herod was a uh, you know up and coming you know military type guy. He took the right side in that battle, and because he supported the one who ultimately won, which I think is Augustus Caesar, um, Augustus named him. Or you know, gave him the title King of Judea, and that was that was BC forty. Excuse, it's not BC seventy. So I said before that was BC forty. He was named King of of Judea, and he reigned until his death in about four BC. He was a bad guy. In fact, it was said that you'd you'd have it better if you were Herod's pig than Herod's son. Um, he had his sons. One of his sons killed because he thought his son was going to take his throne. The guy was paranoid beyond imagination, which leads you to understand why he slaughtered all the little children. You understand, this guy is slaughtering two-year-old kids when he's got one foot in the grave, another on the banana peel, you know, literally ready to die, and he's 
paranoid that those kids are going to take his throne. This guy is, this guy was the, you know, an A number one paranoid nut job. Um, really a bad apple, really a bad guy. And his family, the whole lot of them were bad. The only one that had any, that was even close to being somewhat decent was Agrippa II, who almost, you know, believed. In fact, Bernice, who he was with, is a, was a Herod as well. She was one of the, um, one of the Herodites. So what's your question? You had a question. Yes, I wanted to know when did Philip's brother Start, take take his wife away from. Don't know. Oh, okay. But and he did. They were married, right? Yeah. They were just living together. Okay. I mean, this is a scandalous thing, you know. Um, but that's Herod here. They're 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 just a bad family. All right. And so Herod, um, he stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. You know, it's like woke up one morning, say, yeah, you know, what do I do? You know, for today or. I know, I'll kill a few Christians, you know, see what happens. Um, and, you know, the sad thing about the Herods, let me tell you the sad thing about them. Although they were rulers over Israel, they in fact cared for the Jews. Although the Jews hated them. Um, they, they really did care for the Jewish people. Um, Herod the Great um, is the one who built the, the, the Jerusalem temple. One of the probably wonders of the world at that time. Um, remember, it said uh, 40 and 6 years was this temple in the building. Remember when they were talking about Christ? And he says, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. He said, wait a minute, we've been building this thing for 46 years. Uh, Herod employed thousands of stonemasons. And, I mean, really it was a booming economy under his reign. He built massive aqueducts, uh, massive building projects. Um, he, he really did care for the Jewish people, although he was hated by them. He did care for them. Um, and all the Herods seemed to have a, you know, a care for the Israel. And this Herod here wanted to make the Jews happy. Well, how do you make the Jews happy? That kill a few Christians, right? And so that's what he decides to do. Um, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This was the first disciple to be martyred for his faith. He was killed by Herod, and when he found the Jews like that so much, he put Peter in prison. Let's get the big guy here, right? Yeah. We'll put him in prison. Um, and he delivered four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. This was during the Passover time, so after the Passover, he's going to have Peter killed. All right. Um, and Peter was kept in prison, but the church was constantly praying for him. All right. Um, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. What do you think they were praying for? Probably that he would get out of jail. Possibly that he would be released. Possibly that, you know, whatever happened would bring God glory. Um, it doesn't say what the prayers were, but it says how it was answered. Um just before Herod was to bring him out, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards were there keeping prison. An angel of the Lord came, light shone in prison, woke Peter up. Of course, Peter walks out of the prison, unbound, and down the street. 
and he did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I mean, the guy thought he was sleepwalking. You ever just, you know, he's like Peter, you know, he went to, goes to sleep between two soldiers and he's got this dream and he wakes up and he's outside the prison. You know, why did God um, release Peter? And not James. Don't know. That's sovereign the choice, right? God can do what God does. And they were past the first and the second guard post. They came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. They went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So the angel just shows up and walks Peter out of the prison. Past the guards, past, you know, everybody. And when Peter had come to himself, sort of woke up, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angels to deliver me from the hand of Herod from all the expectation of the Jewish people. <clears throat> God delivered me from this. And when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. As Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda to answer, and she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness. She did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. They said to her, you're beside yourself, yet she insisted that it was so, said it is his angel. Their idea was, well, Peter's dead, you know, his, his spirit sort of showed up to say bye on the way up to heaven or whatever. Now, now this is called, this is called praying with faith, right? You're praying that God would deliver Peter. He gets an answer. And you, you don't believe it. Wait a minute. It's not him. You know, now, unless you laugh, how many of us have done that? You ever pray for a good day? You have a good day and you forget to thank God for it? All the time. You ever pray for a good day, have a bad day, and still turn around and thank God for the day? Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I've known in my own life at times, you know, I've prayed for things and God's answered. And sometimes to catch myself, you know, you forgot to thank him for that. You know, he didn't have to answer. But here God answered their prayer. Why did God answer their prayer? It was part of his sovereign design and purpose. You know, and, and the question goes, well, why did God deliver Peter and not James? Well, I don't know. It's part of God's design and purpose. Why does God do what God does or why does God allow happen what he does? It's part of his plan. We're just part of that plan. Go ahead. Would it be safe to say that the first few years of Christianity that Romans view of Christians were they were just another Jewish yes and they really didn't care about them however it was the Jews who yeah were really upset with them and you know wanted to kill them and everything mm -hmm. all Herod is doing here is trying to make the Jews happy mm -hmm. and so you got to understand you know this is another historical side note that you need to understand to really make sense of the New Testament and that is um Rome Rome was a um you know, they controlled the world at that point. And one of the things they controlled was religion very closely. And in order for you to practice your religion, you had to have it legalized by Rome. All right. You weren't allowed to just there was no such thing as freedom of religion back then. 
Um, and Rome actually said, you have to be authorized to practice your religion. And the Jews' religion was a legal religion. And the way it was legal is because the Jews, one of the, one of the, one of the things you had to do as a, as a Roman is you had to walk down to, the, to your local temple, Roman temple, once a year, pour out a libation, Caesar is God, and get your, it's called a libellus sign. It's like your license. You know, like you got to go get your car license every year. You have once a year, you had to go down, get the thing signed. That, yeah, you poured out your thing. Caesar is God. You can go off and do your own thing. But once a year, you had to do that. And um, the Jews were given an exemption from that, provided they sacrificed an animal in, in the temple twice a day, you know, to Caesar. Not to Caesar as a sacrifice to Caesar, but to God, you know, and Caesar's behalf. And so they did that. Um, and that made them legal. And early on, Christianity was just another Jewish sect as far as Rome was concerned. So technically, Christianity was a legal religion. And it was only until you get to the 60s where Christianity really split off from Judaism that all of a sudden it became under the persecution of the Roman government because then it was an illegal religion. It was not legal. It was no longer Judaist, Judea, a Judaistic sect. However, the Jews hated them all along. You know, they thought, yeah, that's when it really began. 60s, mid-60s. Yeah, okay. All right. I read where three-fifths, well, the city was divided into five different sections. And three out of five sections burned to the ground. And guess who mostly inhabited the other two areas? Jews and Christians. Which is why they went after the Christians or tried to blame it on the yeah. Christians. Yeah, Nero blamed it on the Christians. Right. All right. But um, it was just early on, it was just another Judaistic sect. But then as, as time went on, about AD 50 or 60, Really, Christianity was seen as a separate religion, and at that time it came under Roman persecution because of their illegality. They were not a recognized religion. Because, of course, no Christian would pour out a libation and say, Caesar is God. All right? That was idolatry. Um, Just returning to Rhoda, was there any chance that the early Christians had a misconception about um, uh, ascension? In that, did they believe that? Yeah. Did they believe that close followers of Christ would be raised as Christ was raised physically? No, when they say when they say his angel, you know that goes back to the Jewish superstition. Um, the Jewish superstition held that when you died, your spirit buzzed around your body for three days until your body got so gross that it couldn't recognize it, and then you finally just left and went to wherever it was that you were going. Um, that's why the three days deal was so big with. Lazarus. Wait a minute. He's here three days. He stinks now. Because if if Christ had just showed up, a, you know, a couple hours after he died, most you know, it wouldn't have been a great miracle in the Jewish superstitious mentality. Um, the fact it was three days later was a miracle. All right. And so there's the the the, the going superstitious thought was after a person died, you know, their spirit looked like they did, and you know, hung around for a short period of time before it, you know, went to the grave or, you know, to, to wherever it went. And that's what they were 
thinking here that no Rhoda, you know, you just you saw his ghost, you saw his angel. He's dead now. But she kept insisting it. So, they, you know, angels, you know, ghosts don't knock on the door. So finally they opened it up and they were astonished. Talk about little faith. And by the way, just, just as an aside, you, know, you can preach a whole sermon on this. Um, you look at the New Testament, you see the people who had the, the least faith are the ones that should have had the most. And the ones who shouldn't have had any faith had the greatest. You know, the woman that pushed through the crowd to touch Jesus to get healed. Great faith. He was astonished. that, that he, he was amazed at her great faith. Um, the guy who said, no, Lord, you don't have to come down. You can just speak the word and you'll heal my, my servant. And Christ was astonished by that. And then, you know, the disciples are freaking out in the middle of a little thunderstorm out in the middle of Galilee with the Lord of the universe sleeping in the boat thinking they're going to drown. Or you know. Are you Cyrus? You look for another, and then like this crowd here that that when God actually answered a prayer, they were shocked that He did it. You know? Yeah. I'm sorry. You're. I knew somebody was going to ask something like that. You know? I'm not allowed to give you a five minute answer. Two minutes. You don't worry about it. Because it seems like it's predetermined, and then why do they pray so much? Don't worry about it. I'm serious. I mean, you can't figure it out. Don't try. Just, you know, from God's perspective, God, God either A, determined it, or he knows what's going to happen anyways, right? So why pray? And if God's going to do what God's going to do, why pray? Because he told you to. He told you to. Yeah. Because the Bible teaches it. God is in charge. I mean, whether you, God is in charge. If God is not in charge, you know, this thing could just, uh, you know, maybe Satan will pull it off. How can you be righteously judged by a judge that knew what was going to happen? Because that's the way it is. You still had the choice. That's the paradox. That's the thing that you can't sort out. That's what you got. You just got to live with it. I'm just, I'm just saying you have, at some point you got to learn. Okay, I'm I'm a schizo on this. I got you know I got. No, they didn't. They still knew God was in charge. They still knew God was in control. And see what this, if there's anything the New Testament tells us, is that I can't I can't um, I can't run and hide under the rock of God's sovereignty, and and become passive. Right. All right. I don't. God doesn't want me to do that. Does God know what I'm going to do? Yes. Yes. Whether he knows it by prescient foreknowledge because he just knows everything, right? Would you admit that? Would you admit that God knows the future, yeah. period? Yeah. Well, if God knows the future, why pray to God? Because it's not going to change, don't you right? If, God's going to, if something's going to happen, it doesn't matter whether you pray for it or not. It's going to happen. But you don't know that. But you don't know that. Is prayer for God or is prayer for you? That's the point. The prayer prayer is not for God's benefit. You don't pray to change God's mind in the eternal grand scheme of things. You pray to change your mind. Does that make any sense? 
You pray to change your mind. It doesn't, it doesn't. You know. And I pray for you because you got hit by a car and I want to see you healed. Mm-hmm. What does that do for myself? I understand it's not going to change God's mind. You know, either he will heal you, heal you or he won't. But what it does is it makes you empathize. It brings you um, faith when you see your prayer answered. Um. It's a, it's a way for you to share in my suffering, right? I mean, there are benefits that go your way. Again, this, this is a tough, knotty, paradoxical issue, yeah, right? You know, and the we're thing is... Yeah, and, and, the, and the response to that is that is bad theology. Right. That is bad theology. Yeah, that's for example, John. You go, you go to the book of Revelation. John is seeing the end of all things, right? He sees how history is going to turn out, and how does he end his book? He's praying. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now you say, well, you saw him come. What are you praying for? You know what's going to happen. Why pray about it? Well, why is he praying about it? He's praying about it because it lines his will, his thinking, his goals, his desires up with what God is going to do. Right? Yeah. That's that's the purpose of it. You see Daniel. Well, I, just, I heard a talk, sorry, I heard a talk this week and they said that if it's already predetermined, that's that's God's way of keeping on business. No. <laughs> that's bad theology. You look at you look at Daniel. I mean Daniel was reading in the books Daniel 9, he was reading in the books where it said 70 years for Israel to be in captivity. And guess what? He had a calendar, and he knew that 70 years was just about up. So what does he do? Okay, I guess I'm going to go back, you know. I'm going to go eat, have dinner, whatever. No, he fasted and prayed. And why did he do that? Because they weren't ready to go back. Their hearts were not ready. They, had, He's thinking, boy, you know, we haven't really learned our lesson yet. What's And... and what happened is, although he knew God's plan, he wanted to align himself with that that plan and purpose. I don't know the mind of God. You know, if you got if you walk out here and get run over by a truck and you're in the hospital, I don't know whether God's going to heal you or take you home. But I pray. Why? I pray that whatever would happen would be to bring God's honor and glory, and that and that if it if it would be God's will that He would He would heal you if. If not, that he would take. But what am I doing? I'm becoming, you know, weeping with those that weep, mourning with those that mourn, laughing with those that laugh. It's part of the body. It's a part of empathizing with one another and sharing in their heart. And we're praying in his name, too. In Jesus' name. It's not just a name. A name is his character. It's all that he is. But didn't Jesus just show us the text? Yeah, he did. Right, so... And what is prayer? Prayer is communion with God. All prayer is, you got to understand, all prayer, we think of prayer as what? Well, some of, some. what does the average Christian think prayer is? Ah, uh, here's the list of things I want. Here's my list. 
give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. That's not what prayer is. All right. It, does prayer contain components of that? Yes. Well, sure it is. Give us this day our daily bread. Sure. God is the source of everything. So, so there is a sense in which, yes, we can do that. But prayer is more than gimme, gimme, gimme. Prayer is communion with the Father. It's talking to God. I find myself at times saying, you know, Lord, let me see things the way you do, even for a little bit, even in a, even in my own infinite, you know, infinitely poor way. You know, because of my finiteness and my own lack of perspective, at least, you know, let me see things through your eyes a little bit. You know, what's on your heart? What bothers you today? You ever ask God that? You know, Father, what's on your heart? What what, what bothers you? What do you? Th- yeah, and then, yeah, and that's our problem. And and we've got to we've got to we've got to break ourselves out of that. Prayer is not going to God with a list of gimmies. It's much more. What did Christ do when he prayed? What was his prayer all about? Father, give me this. Father, give me that. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. You're God. You don't need to ask for anything. But what was what was the major component of Christ's prayer for the most part? Communion or intercession for others. But really, it was communion with God. It was being with the Father. It was a relationship thing. That's what prayer is all about. And and what what happens when you reduce it to just a list, you're really missing out. And is God going to do what God's going to do? Absolutely. But, you know, I want to be part of the plan. I want to be part of what goes on. And that's what I pray about. You know, that, that, that. Maybe God saved your life there in the hospital because he knew you were going to pray for that person and ask for him. Yep. And you got to understand, you don't see, we do not see the decree and plan of God. There's a mystery to that that we just, we're never going to sort out. Period. There's a mystery. The decree of God. The decree of God is his eternal purpose, which he created before, which he came up with before time began. God knew how all of creation was going to sort itself out. He knew what was going to happen. That's his decree. But I don't see the decree. I don't have the plan book. I don't know what that is. So what do I do? I pray. What is what did the church do when Peter was in prison? They prayed. All right. What are you to do for other people? Pray for their salvation. Wait a minute. If they're a, if they're in, they're in. If they're not, they're not. That's irrelevant. I don't know that. You don't know that. And and here's the thing. Maybe you are the means whereby God works out His sovereign plan. See, that's the cool part. Right. Is when you become part of God. Now, you know, if somebody's elect, is God going to save them with or without you? Well, sure He is. But it's cool to be part of the process. It's cool to be there. And maybe you're the one that God sovereignly ordained to be the one that takes the message. But don't 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 spend your time in this fatalistic worldview that says what's going to happen is going to happen regardless. That's not what the New Testament. The New Testament says it's there because God is in charge, but that's not where it dwells. It dwells on my responsibility. 
I am to pray. The church prayed for Peter. They prayed that God would deliver him. And God did. And then they were shocked when he did. <laughs> and sometimes we have to catch ourselves, you know, when when we pray for something, God answers our prayer. And then we we're like in shock that he actually did it. What kind of faith is that? You know, the Bible says you're to pray expectantly that God would answer it the right way. Now, he may not answer it the way you ask him to. Right. But it'll be OK. And if he doesn't, your attitude should be. That's fine by me. Um, well, they're the people of little faith, remember? They're the ones of, in the yeah, Gospels of little faith. Yeah. But there are a lot of people that did not get healed as well. But, they, but you know, the, the thing is, as a believer, whatever God, we should want whatever God wants. Well, you said, you know, when they described the trouble of the disciples, they said they were full of faith. Yeah. So that, to me, tells me. They saw God working day by day. They they were on, but, but the other thing is, here's the thing. Here's the thing to really understand about that. They were on God's page. God was not on their page. There's a big difference. All right. What you see today is you, in, in a lot of the, 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 you know, far loony charismatic type movement is people making God on their page. God is not on their page. Okay. You don't manipulate God to do what you want to do as though you're the sovereign one in the, in the equation. You're not. All right. You want to be on God's page. And that's what prayer brings you. Prayer puts you on his page. It lines you up with his plans and his purposes. And why were they able to do the miracles they did? Because that was what God was doing at that time. And that was the plan. And they were part of that. But they were not telling God what to do and when to do it. You know, it's, it's shocking to hear some of these guys saying, you know, you, one guy actually said, you know, never pray if it be thy will. He says it has nothing to do with God's will. It has to do with your will. I'm not making that up. All right. He's saying, he's saying, don't, he's saying, if you pray, if it be thy will, this or that, you don't have enough faith. You need to have faith saying, it doesn't matter whether it's God's will or not. I want this and God's going to do it. All right. Now, wait a minute. All right. You know, I don't, I don't want to be close to that guy. I might get singed along with a lightning bolt that comes down. All right. It may not be. It may be. You may need to be patient. Remember, there's that parable in, in um, I think it's Luke, the persistent widow. Avenge me, my adversary. And the guy says, you know, I, you know, I really don't give a, I don't care about this woman. And I, you know, she's nagging me to death. And so I'm going to avenge her just to get her out of here. Yeah, yeah, he was an unjust judge. And and the whole point there is not that Christ is saying, you know, God is, oh, here she comes again. Oh, sh I'm going to, I'll answer just to get her out of here. That's, that's, that's not, that's not the point Christ is trying to make. The point Christ is trying to make is that persistence produces results. And sometimes God wants to say, well, how bad do you really want this? 
you know. Sometimes the answer is it takes years. Sometimes it takes years. Don, you're... Yeah, we had a staff meeting this week, and Pastor Minley came in almost in tears because Al Aldrin had broken into a meeting just minutes before and told him that a, a gentleman that he had been trying to reach for Christ for 60 years yeah. had just come to Christ. And it, they were just thrilled. George Mueller prayed for a couple of guys for 25 years to come to know the Lord. One of them came to know the Lord six months before he died. The other one came to know the Lord after George Mueller died. And I said, well, probably George Mueller showed up in heaven. The first thing he asked the Lord is, well, what about so-and-so down there? You know, but the whole point is persistence in prayer. Now, now, you know, Quite honestly, there does come a point if you are praying in your communion with God, there comes a point when you realize, wait a minute. God's given me my answer. I sh the, the answer is no. That, that comes to you. You can figure that out. Paul figured that out, right? I prayed three God. times for the thorn in the flesh and God says no. And Paul says, OK, fine, I'll, I'll live with that. I won't. I won't pray about that anymore. So when James talked about um, wavering faith. Yeah, he talks about he's he's talking there about when you pray, when you pray, believe that God's going to answer. Don't say, well, he will. He won't. He will. He won't. He will. He won't. He will. He won't. You pray with a single mind. You you pray believing that he hears you. And and if, you know, a double, you know, idea is a double minded man is unstable. You know, you never know. You know, is if you think of all those things you want to do, but you don't want to do and you know, you wake up one day and you want to do it. And the next day you don't. And the next day you do. And the next day you don't. And, you know, some people live that way. You know, they never can make up their mind. You know, but the church here was praying and God answered their prayer in a very visible way. And one of the things I always wondered is why didn't Herod just rearrest Peter? Jerusalem isn't that big. Good night. You could find the guy. Herod figured out, wait a minute, this is a supernatural thing. I better I better lay low on this one. You know, but but if Herod wanted him, he could have tracked him down. But I do think there's a sense in which Herod realized that, wait a minute, you know, some guy just doesn't walk out of a prison. These are professional soldiers. The because why would he do that? Why were the soldiers put to death? Well, he knew it was supernatural. They weren't sleeping. The penalty of those days, yeah, the penalty of those days is if you were a soldier and you were guarding someone and they escaped, you took their place. You took their place. I mean, that was just the way it was. Why did the jailer want to kill himself? Because he's responsible for those. And if they if they escape, his life is forfeit. I mean, that's that that was the way it was. And of course, what did the soldiers say? They they couldn't figure out what had happened. I mean, one guy one moment the guy's with him, the next moment he's gone. You know, the chains are there. He's not there. What happened? They open up.
No more questions for you. Then it says, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is this a little bit later. Peter's, of course, laying low. He's not there. Undoubtedly, I think, I mean, Herod was an, had been around the Jews enough to know that there were supernatural things that happened. He couldn't have been ignorant of Christ and things like that. He just didn't, didn't accept it. But uh, he had a problem with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Um, but they, they tried to make things up here. They tried to... Uh, so they came to one of the court, having made blasts as the king's person laid their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So Tyre and Sidon got their food from Israel, from Judea. They wanted to make peace because Herod was mad with them. He probably cut off the food supply. So they set a day. Herod arrayed in his royal apparel, sent his and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God, not of a man. Now, why would they say that? Well, you know, the, you know, they, they want to get in good with him, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, what better way to get in good with a guy than to pump his ego up? You know, and Herod, of course, took it out in, didn't he? The voice of a God, not a man. And it says here, immediately the name of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten of worms and died. Now, this is accounted for in history. He apparently had a very, some kind of debilitating intestinal disease. It said that his breath stank and he died being eaten of worms. Thinking on tapeworms? More than that. I mean, whatever he had was nasty. All right. But he died a very violent and vile death. All right. Um, God doesn't share his glory with anybody else. Right. Um, I think historically he, it was very close. It wasn't like he fell over dead while he was giving his speech kind of thing. But within, within a very short period of time, he had died. Um, I, don't, I think Josephus talks about this um, and Josephus. You know, I, we, you know, I don't think does it talk medically about what disease he had or what they thought he had. Um, whatever it was, I think historically it said his, he, 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 his breath stank. I mean, he, you know, there's something really gross that, that killed him. Well, again, Luke is looking back, right? He doesn't say Herod fell over dead. In fact, historically, it doesn't say that. Historically, he died fairly short after that. Your Mac office says five days. Johnny Mac is right. <laughs> Johnny Mac is correct. Johnny Whatever Mac Johnny, he endured terrible pain for five days before he died. Okay. Um, in verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem to fulfill their ministry. They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this is after they brought the money down. And again, what was it? 80, 44, 45, 46 is the famine. This is the time that Herod put forth his hand to deal with, with um, James, killed James. So all that time period. And after Herod died, after the famine was relief was over, Paul and Barnabas went back and who did they take with them? John Mark. 
Pompey who came back with them to Antioch. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.